You're listening to Tone Benders, the sound designer's podcast. Let's do this. Hello, and welcome to Tone Benders, where we talk with the sonic artists behind our favorite films, series, and games. My name is Tim Muirhead, and I will be your wingman today as we talk with the sound team of the recent box office smash, Top Gun Maverick. Normally, I take this time in the intro to set up the film we'll be talking about, but I think everyone has a pretty good handle on this one. So please indulge me as I tell you my personal history with Top Gun. The original film came out in 1986. I was 11 years old, and that summer, my family moved to Chicago. My parents were both knee-deep in their new jobs, and I was left to my own devices in a new city where I didn't know anyone, and I'd never really felt so alone. But at the end of my new street was a movie theater, and it played Top Gun for the entire summer, and I went to see it nearly every day. Now, I don't mean I went and saw it a couple times. I saw it like 30 or 40 times. I went all the time. It was all I did. And then I would ride my bike home going down the hill as fast as I could while I was imagining I was Maverick in a dogfight, singing Highway to the Danger Zone at the top of my lungs. All my new neighbors had no idea what kind of crazy kid had just moved into town. That film was my best friend that summer. So Top Gun really meant a lot to me. There's been a lot of talk about how that film created thousands of kids that wanted to grow up to be pilots. But I think there's an even larger amount of kids that saw that film and wanted to grow up to make movies. When I heard a sequel was coming out, I was more apprehensive than excited, if I'm going to be honest. But I still bought my ticket and went out on opening night, and this film took my breath away. It was an amazing, immersive film full of emotions and excitement, and the sound plays a huge role in pulling that off. So let's talk about it. Joining me today are three of the film's supervising sound editors. First up, Bjorn Schroeder. Hello, Bjorn. Welcome to Tonebenders. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. We also have Al Nelson. Wonderful to meet you, Al. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Our final sound supervisor is James Mather, who is joining us from the UK. James, it's nice to finally meet you. And you. Thank you for, thank you for having us all. We also have the film's re-recording mixers, Chris Burden, who is in the dialogue and music end of the mixing board. Hello, Chris. Hi, thank you for having us. And finally, Mark Taylor, who is in charge of mixing the sound effects. Welcome, Mark. Hello. Okay, let's talk a bit about the vehicles in this film, because that's what everybody's excited to talk about. We have super modern jets, the Dark Star, planes from the 80s that they go back and fly, and then a prop plane from decades further into the past at the end of the film. Let's start with you, Al. I think you were on board first. How did you go about collecting the sounds for all these different types of planes? I started with a conversation with director Joe Kaczynski. He started imparting some of the details of the film. He mentioned that there was going to be this new stealth Mach 10 jet called the Dark Star and that I should do some research on what Skunk Works was doing. And I think there was something called the SR-51 or something that's out there that is this proprietary jet. And so he said, you know, do some research. And he would send me little clips from online. So that's where it started. And then we started discussing how we would want to collect as much material as possible for the film. Got a hold of, uh, of an early script and discovered that there was a lot more than just jets in there. So started making a list. But obviously one of the most important things was to get as much F-18 material as possible. One of my first experiences, gratefully and thankfully, the production set this up, was to go and join the Navy out in the Atlantic <laughs> on an aircraft carrier for a week. Wow. And uh, 
I got to got to live with the Navy for a week. <laughs> recorded lots and lots of F-18s, but conveniently they were also recording the F-35s. So got some extra material from those as well, which we ended up using for some of the Sioux 57s or the, well, the, what were we calling the bad guys in this the film? The fifth deal? generation yeah. planes? Yeah, the fifth gens. That's right, the fifth gens. Because you know we don't know where they're from. You know. <laughs> we we can't keep up with those fifth gens. You know. <laughs> uh, Anyway, so that was some of the early stuff. And then throughout the process, you know, we recorded lots and lots more jets and got some specific jet engines through through GE and through Pratt & Whitney and other opportunities such as that. And motorcycles uh, had fun doing it. Lots of great opportunities, but it was all facilitated through the production. They were really, really supportive in getting us out there, getting us access to the Navy, putting us in contact with all the right folks who, and, and the Navy themselves were just really, really helpful and supportive. They weren't like, you know, what are you doing here? They're like, yeah, let us tell you more. It's great fun. And after that, that, Benny Burt joined me for a lot of this. Benny Burt is my, I call him my secret weapon, but he's, he's just an amazing sound editor and recordist who was involved throughout the process. So once you have those sounds, James, did you do a lot of the plane cutting? No. These guys did huge amount of work making the soundscape, filling it with all the material that they recorded, both ADR, dialogue, production, sound effects. Yeah. We, we inherited the tracks at a later stage. This was a precarious time with COVID and separation and remote working. Filmmakers had to move continents, so things had to move with them, and, you know, we were here to help out. The best thing about this collaboration is that we all got to make the best of every essence that was in the ingredients. The material we were given was incredible. The levels that they'd gone to to make these sounds as authentic and as true to life, which is something that Tom is slightly obsessive about it in a way that's <laughs> really healthy because he knows this stuff. He invests his soul and heart into everything he does so you know every director that works with him you know every collaboration everybody gets to really go deep and dig down into the essence of what the reality is on these soundtracks and these guys did an incredible job the film is never done until it's in the can and we know that there was much still to conquer on the other side of the Atlantic. And and it should be noted that the ground dropped out from under the entire production when COVID hit. We were kind of hearing these rumblings of this virus that was slowly moving, you know, around the continent, but we're deep in temp mixes and just oblivious to it. We're thinking, what are we doing tomorrow and the next day and the next day? And then all of a sudden, everything changed. And with that, we had to really think fast and how do we finish this? This is hundreds of millions of dollars invested in this film. They still intended for it to release in July. And so in March, we were like, what do we do? Well, on top of everything else we're doing, we're trying to figure out, okay, how do we get this packaged and handed off as efficiently and quickly as possible so that these gentlemen can take it and run with it and mix it and still finish it. It was an impressive feat for us to be able to do it as seamlessly as we did because we also were literally locked out of our studios for for many weeks. And so uh, also credit to the engineers and the technicians who enabled us to have access to all of this media you know, when when that didn't really, that wasn't a thing yet, you know, being able to have remote access to mixes and, you know, at most mixes. So yeah. it, it was a challenge and we're very grateful that everyone involved, including James and Mark and Chris, 
worked so efficiently through that. It has to be said that this all happened right at the very beginning of the pandemic. I mean, like we were completely locked down, like in San Francisco, they just gave us the, oh, we'll just be kind of locked down for three weeks. And then it just kind of turned into more or less two years. But it was right at that cusp. And I have to say, like Al said before, the engineers on both sides did an amazing job of us literally like transferring this whole mix over and all the pre-dubs and everything incredibly efficiently. We're up and running in about, I would say, three to four days with like certain kind of drive technology. And then they went to proprietary technology at the ranch. And they were, we're very, very thankful for them like that we pulled it off. Even when we're in lockdown, the filmmakers were still asking us to shoot more ADR <laughs> remotely with the uh, actors under their pillows, with us sending out equipment to them and recording them remotely. It was a real challenge. And we're really, really proud how it all kind of came together at the end. Can, and, I, add a, can I add a point to that? From the perspective of being on the receiving end, and, and we had this picture editor, Eddie Hamilton, who is probably the most polite and calm even-tempered genius. Um, genius of an editor really <laughs> remarkable guy a remarkable guy not only does he cut picture in an extraordinary way without fuss he gets sound in a way that it is part of and um, parcel of the, the picture he sees the two things as totally hand in glove his relationship with the guys stateside was excuse the pun but it was paramount and when he came back to the uk there were two things going on there was the we got to get this done and eddie's gonna steer this ship through the canals of attrition to make it work and there was this other vibe that was going on which is all the other things, all the other elements of this production that needed to happen to get it finished in time, all the other elements of, you know, there may be reshoots, they may be, there, there's definitely going to be re-recordings, there's definitely, and I swear that Tom and McHugh, who were the two that were U a UK side, they loved it. They were, it was like, we can make this work. This is a challenge that nobody's ever had to work through. And these guys love challenges. It's food for them. It's oxygen for them. They perform so well under pressure that they relish that. And their commitment to getting this production finished for the filmmakers, for Joe, for the studio, for the audience, for the public, that was the deal. The public need this. They need something that's going to bring some light in this time of darkness. It was extraordinary to watch that passion and that commitment against all adversity. We were doing our jobs, albeit in hazmat suits, with dividing <laughs> barriers. They even talked about having perspex barriers at the desk. Do you remember? And we're like, oh, guys, this is good. Oh, I wanted that. Enough. <laughs> <laughs> we'll wear masks. That's fine. But the, no, not the barriers. There's no way you're going to listen to this in silicon you know, perspective barriers. But it was an extraordinary time for everybody, both sides of the Atlantic, to keep the ball rolling, to meet the challenges and to overcome the challenges, which, you know, I've got to say, this movie overcame all those challenges through everybody's commitment and slightly weirdly excitement about something that we've got to do that we've never done before. So not only was this an extraordinary movie to tell the story of and to feel passionate about, it was also fueled by the chaos of the world around us. And it can't be forgotten, you know, this is, this is the big movie of the pandemic for me. This is the movie that brought people out of the pandemic and back into theatres, and we've all seen that. No other movie's done that on that scale. That, for me, is mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. And we didn't get COVID. None of us got COVID. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I said, yeah, I'm, okay. I'm a virgin. Yeah, yeah. 
Same here. <laughs> it's coming. Not though, it's coming. Printmaster. After Printmaster, we would. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get our re-recording mixers involved in the conversation here. Something that can be tricky for a movie like this is the problem of building in quiet moments in these huge action sequences. And I thought that, because obviously if you just have nonstop tearing jet engines, the audience is going to get fatigued by that. I thought this was one of the best films I've ever seen for that. And there was a couple moments where I was just in awe of what was done. Let's start with the Dark Star. This is the experimental jet scene at the beginning. When it first takes off, it rips over the general's head. Then the engine type changes. I'm not really sure how to word that. And there's a rumble and the fire and it's ripping through the sky. And then when it gets to about Mach 7, it goes from a bombastic sound to a majestic sound. All of a sudden, it goes from ripping and tearing to almost like whistling. And how did that idea come? Was that built in? Tell me a bit about that whole sequence. I don't know about how the idea came. The music for that section was wonderful. And built up to that point, I can remember there's a top shot where you're looking from space. (laughs) And there's a a beautiful piece of music. And it's just kind of intuitive. You just go, well, that music's really nice. You don't really want to hear a jet over that. This is a really nice, quiet moment. And it's like, it's almost like underscoring the dialogue with the effects for that sequence and that Tom's not projecting over a, a jet engine. Yeah. He's, you know, he's quite... Talk to me, Goose. Talk that to me, Goose. Line, yeah. That line yeah. was such a massive line. Yeah. I mean, that was yeah. that had so much focus on the right delivery, the right timing. At what point does the, do, do we drop down for that before? Do we? Do, there was so... That took hours to get that one moment because that Talk to me, Goose set up Maverick's dilemma for the rest of the movie. That's his also, thing. He's living with that. And it also sets the movie up of being about Maverick. Yeah. The heart of it. We, yeah, I mean, we were given repeatedly, we knew this is Maverick's story. It was his emotion, his connections to all of the characters that come and join in this film as, as it evolves. That sort of shape, it was Maverick's moment in the dark star. It's one of many sequences where we go into his world, into his psychology, into his past, all within this space of seconds, minutes. And again, the sort of conducting the Eddie Hamilton master picture editor, where we're forming and putting together the pieces of the sequence like that. He has an idea of how we're going to approach it. I already had a chance to go through the music, so I know where... I want it to release thematic, the, the strong parts of the music, also the sections where we can actually let sound effects dominate. And so we just piece our way through that. And it evolves quite a lot, you know, and, and you're reliant and what your initial question is directed towards the, the soundscape changing and allowing that to happen. So the tonality of the sound effects change. And throughout the film, you'll astutely have been aware, there are moments where we go pure music, where the engines disappear and, we were we had a chat yesterday. All of us got together again, and and I was just saying that we're so kind of blessed with this film that it worked so well with all the script, the acting, and every actor was brilliant in every form. You know, there's seldom do you have a movie it's so consistent you can be so confident. And what it meant was that we could make those steps so confidently to go to into the head moments, just music and dialogue or 
take strip the music out and just go for breathing. And it felt like we could make those decisions. And Dark Star was one of those ones where it just felt natural. We didn't have a huge amount of time mixing, but we had a generous amount of time within our kind of COVID-led schedule. And we would revisit it. But again, we we kind of knew the points across a long sequence what where we wanted to hit. And we're talking about the lovely, beautiful shot where it like feels like it's from space. The music just takes it's that. Brilliant. And it's just these moments are really hugely gratifying. And then you get something that's actually quite technical to maintain momentum, a single line of dialogue with a rising music cue. Any mixer will know, and you know, sound effects combined where you're, you just have one important line and it needs to hit. So you, as James says, you're, you're tweaking and luckily, you know, I have music stems where I can take some of the high, high frequencies down to accommodate the dialogue coming through, but maybe just exaggerate some low end so you don't feel the music momentum disappear under these lines. It's a buildup of techniques that you've built up over the years and experience if you're lucky a sequence like that really works and you mm -hmm. don't you don't end up with this sort of car crash of things combining and and we've all worked with eddie on and off many times over the years and he's great he comes and says i want to hear every line of dialogue clear i don't want to i don't want to miss mm -hmm. one line of dialogue that's a stylistic thing there are huge blockbusters where stylistically we know that there are huge scores and, and massive sequences of cgi where less less intention to have that clarity because it doesn't need it and it's all about the size and weight we had the potential to, to do that and we had the loudest sequences i loved seeing the reviews when they said it was loud whereas in many other films i've been worried it's too loud in this one didn't i didn't have any concerns i wanted it to be loud when it was loud and quiet when it's quiet. So yeah, there. there's a lot of dialogue in there. Is a... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I that's mean, true. Yeah. And <laughs> you know, compared to the first, yeah, compared to the first movie, Eddie was so clear that we wanted to get every dog fight, every sequence clear to the audience, so they really understood the peril every moment. And yeah, yeah I hope we achieved it. Well, as much as there's lots of dialogue in the film, in the dogfights, something that really came across to me that really set the stage for the urgency of it is hearing the pilots breathing. In particular, when Maverick is proving that the time can be done, there's just a kind of a low drone going on and him breathing. And that is so tension filled. Was that all done in ADR or how is anything in the cockpit even recorded? I'm asking four questions at once here. I'm sorry. Bjorn, do you want to take that? Yeah, I'm probably going to take that. And I'm going to kind of in spirit wrap in uh, Mark Weingarten, who was not able to uh, join us today, who was the location sound recordist uh, for all the main unit recordings. They had a lot of challenges just technically to get recordings within the cockpit. And it was, as you know, we said before, it was so important to Tom and all the filmmakers that everything had to just sound incredibly real. They just wanted to, like, you're really feeling with inside them and feeling how they're pulling the Gs and everything. They had a lot of technical issues because they have to go through all these departments at the Navy and everyone, and they just had a really hard time mounting gear within these uh, cockpits, and they finally came up with a solution. The biggest problem actually was everything had to be mounted within the ejector seat. When they have to eject, like, everything goes with them and it can't interfere with that system. And then they came with their quarters, but they were too big, and they, they were still, like, kind of behind their head mounted on the side and you could see them and they finally sorry mark i don't recall what the recorder was but they found that was finally small enough 
where they could run one or two mics into the mask and pick up the sound. And that sound was so important to Tom and also Joe Kaczynski, our director. We kind of carry that into the mix and all the way to Chris Bird in the final. I have to admit, it's a balance between production sound and also quite a bit of ADR. But even speaking with Mark, he couldn't even tell like where we kind of switched over. And it was so, so important to them to get that aggressive kind of distorted sound from these recordings. We all spent a lot of time in the US and I think you guys also did some pickups in the UK for making that match. And we spent like many hours with Joe sitting in a room and worldizing and get that sound to match to finally get Joe to sign off. But it was really Mark Weingarten's recordings that informed us of what they heard because when they came back, they ran their dailies. Everyone just absolutely loved that sound. But as you know, when, when the editing process goes and things get compressed and they didn't record anything, they were talking about getting like support planes to fly with them. They could kind of monitor them and see that that all was thrown out the window. The actors got in the cockpit and they devised a system where they could hit one switch and it would trigger the video and the audio and everything was rolling. And then when they came back, they crossed their fingers and hoped it all worked out. Except I think Mark told me, sorry, like, except for where one failed, got all these recordings. And it was these recordings that were always trying to emulate and, and basically make sure we get that right in, in the ADR that we shot for the film too. I was going to just add to that because that's it's really interesting the way the levels, the layers, increased need to portray the reality of the time and the moment. And yeah. that notion the way you start with it there and you get the emotional response, but then you start throwing in a, a thrumming music track and a, we know you start layering it up with a, a lot of Foley stuff. I mean, Foley didn't feature big in this movie, but there's a lot of stuff there's in that scene where he's throwing himself... From left to right, it's like he's physically <clears throat> steering that jet. He is, he, it's not just the joystick, it's his el shoulders and elbows that seem to turn it. I think Tom actually, at one point during the very, very final part of the dub, just before we got to the, the print master and the sign off, he wanted to do a pass. He wanted to give it a go to see if he could recapture what he knew was there from the early days, listening to the tracks, knowing what had been recorded. What he was in his own way saying is it needs to be about Maverick. It needs to be about what was there originally. That feeling of being physically moved to make this thing work. And so he did a pass that I think it was like three takes that, like Beyond said, got worked into the track. What ended up in the mix because of that opportunity, because he he wanted that extra layer of elevation, what you got yeah. then to mix with was just to punch that through and give the extra human effort in that moment. Because that was one that evolved quite late, that we absolutely got the clarity on that sequence, because for a lot of people, that's the beginning of one of the best sequences in the film, the two minutes 15, and it's... The, yeah. <laughs> you know, Bjorn, the, the, the bomb run. Point, yeah, the reference point for the real sounds that was recorded in the cockpit and in the helmets, we couldn't always use because the line was changed and there's ADR lines and so on. And this was an instance where I knew what the reference point and what the feel we wanted in there, but it was re-recorded all the breath. So what we had, and as, as James points out, it reminds us, it's quite interesting. This is all two and a bit years ago. We, we drag our memories back to this moment. Yeah. We go, oh yeah, that's how we did that. You know, I had all the fun of all those tools again, the bore, the boring, not need to know about the plugins or whatever, but it's a kind of combination of distortion, uh, plug-in, some pretty funky EQ settings, compression, and a cockpit impulse response reverb, just to create that. Then moving those elements, I, I could really enjoy myself and go for it. Because as you say, the music throughout that sequence 
um, early on is just Isn't supporting. It? Yeah. And on the, if you actually watch it on home on your iPad, you don't hear it's a really lovely low low register and so on. And it just reveals itself throughout the sequence. But between Mark and myself, in terms of the, the Foley and the engine, there's numerous wonderful exterior shots where you get the big hits of the engine and so on. Yeah. We could just tell in the room this was something quite special with the breathing that it just was great. You know, that it was, but you could be so punchy with it, with the levels and get some shape. Interestingly enough, I'm sure it's the same as the sequence. At the end, the final breaths are ADR as well. And they were quite difficult. They're really subtle. People, when he pulls his mask, he pulls his mask off, yeah. there's two breaths at the end. And they were quite difficult to really sit in and make feel really, there's a mixing thing. I don't know what particularly. It was just, again, I had to really crank in a lot of the things I've already talked yeah. about to try and make it sound like it was attaching to his mouth. It was quite weirdly difficult, that. But what a joy to have a sequence that starts like that and just reveals, you know, and then yeah. it becomes puncher and puncher. The music, I could talk about this forever. One of the nice linkages in terms of us getting, as soon as all the material turned up and we had the first few weeks, Mark and I and James and the whole team had to take all Alan Bjorn's brilliant work and take it and get it, prepare it in the way we wanted to then move into the final mix. Um, I got the luxury, which sometimes happens, I had a day or two, probably two days in the studio to look at a lot of the music cues. And I was able oh, to take, take the five one stems and just start to put them into the Atmos world and go into the overheads and put some in objects. I'd played quite a few cues and I was like a kid in a sweet shop, you know. I was just <laughs> playing all the music and playing these sequences. And I remember playing that sequence, just music. And the way the music just starts to do its thing. You don't even need to push it early. There's the middle of the sequence, it's climbing. And the hairs on the back of my neck were standing up. I was on my own in this big studio thinking, <laughs> this is, I can't believe I'm born on this one. And I got to the end and it was almost a little bit teary-eyed. And I walked through the back. I knew where Eddie was in his cutting room. And I just, I needed to have a had to speak to someone. I just went through and said to Eddie, that is just phenomenal. It's one of the best things I've ever seen. And I've only just put the music in. Uh, <laughs> you know. So those were things that happened on the film that we didn't know quite how it was going to hit emotionally we yeah. hoped it was but we kind of got these very major pointers that it was something special we, well we started off with that sequence much more real didn't we yeah. and then tom yeah. came and said that he wanted it to be like a boxing match yeah mad versus yeah. the plane which we yeah. duly did it is the yeah. sum of all his parts that movie yeah. I mean, it is in every way in the visuals in the direction in the cast it's just the sum of all his parts it's very yeah. very rare that we, all of us, get to work on something that is as demanding and as fulfilling as the, as Top Gun Maverick. I have to say, definitely, definitely don't enjoy uh, Top Gun Maverick on your iPad. That's probably the first thing. <laughs> you know, try, try to see it, see it on a big screen. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I've, I've, ne I've never myself worked on a film where something as subtle as breasts was was so incredibly important. And I, and I really enjoyed like how the final mix ended up with you guys in London, where one of the most exciting scenes was because there was this debate in the in the in the final bomb run when they finally go for it, if they're going to be music or not. And like I, I think I know they were playing with both ideas and I couldn't have been happier when all that kind of music he was kind of held back until we get that peril with Rooster at the end. And it's, that challenge comes out and the music just supports it a little bit. But the whole rest of the sequence is just the sound effects, a little bit of the music, which is really kind of underplayed. And just the kind of the breath. And as you said, like all that Foley in the plane was just yeah. such a fantastic sequence. I'm so proud, I have to say, of this, how this whole film turned out.
That sequence is amazing. To, uh, again, <laughs> yeah. to someone who works in sound, watching that when the music pulls out, it's a long time, like two minutes without music. I'm not sure. I, like I was enjoying the movie, so it's I didn't have my stopwatch out. It's just it's just about that. Yeah, it's just about two minutes. It's, it's longer than that. It's it's a good five minutes or so. Yeah, it's the whole run up the canyon and the whole process. So it's you know it's it, obviously it's supposed to be two and a half minutes. I think it's longer than that as we're cutting back and forth to the ship because the music doesn't kick in until that final missile. Hits Maverick. Well, it it kicks in a bit more. It starts to create the tension as we see Rooster in peril. And that's where the music starts to build. Um, And it works effectively because of that, because you've been in this very literal sequence. You're there in the jets with them. The music isn't telling you what to feel or what to think. You're getting that from the performances. The music doesn't actually start to tell you the emotion until you're already feeling it. When you see, oh no, Rooster's dead, Maverick steps in and sacrifices himself so it's a it's a long chunk and, yeah. and beautifully mixed really really great it's amazing how the intensity can sustain itself and that point as you said when the music comes in you know the music is not leading you it's rescuing you from overkill you know you kind of at that moment where you're like oh i can't breathe anymore the music exactly. gives you that <laughs> yeah. it's very very well crafted yeah. by, by the filmmakers you know they had a lot of time on this movie they really knew <laughs> what they wanted out of it. Yeah. It was very impressive. The music gives you a little hug there, there at the end, you know. That's <laughs> <laughs> what you need. <laughs> so it's all just a little hug to kind of make you... Uh, for me, like, the whole sequence really starts when they kind of get launched off of the aircraft carrier and you just get those fantastic uh, sounds that were put in the film, just like, the uh, you know, the catapults that you hear. And there's that chaos of them being in that control room where I, I guess I showed the mission command center. And I think, uh, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, those are actually all real. Those are from all the other pilots except for Tom Cruise. I think those were all like Mark's recordings. They had that nice distortion on They Always Love Them and like, I think they kind of were carried through all the way to the end of the film, right? There's an absolute mixture in there. It's okay. funny, once you've, got, once you've got them in there you forget, you know, again, the lines of dialogue that change would automatically be in a, a new ADR line and a little bit more clarity and so on. But once I'd got them in my system of three tracks per, per character, headphone, um, helmet, distortion, kind of going you know you treated them but yeah there's a mixture that whole template for the futzes like that started a long time ago sitting sitting there with joe and just keep on sending him bounces and you'd come to my room and we'd sit there and say like oh, that's not quite right. that's the one and then we'd play it to everyone else and the filmmakers i'm glad it worked out and i'm glad that it matched what mark recorded originally too i think that was a real challenge it's great that no one can really tell <laughs> it's what i said you hope it happens intuitively but what we did with the distorts and I think there would be feedback if I went too far or whatever, was always to sell exactly what we're seeing as much as we could. But ultimately, you do not want to destroy these character voices. There's all these brilliant different actors. And a sequence like that also has this wonderful cutting back to this beautiful blue-toned control room with John Hamm and then his voice or Charles Parnell's voice. So, Oh, my God, that voice was amazing. Brilliant voices. So, so then when we went into the, into the cockpits, you really wanted it to feel every character to still be there. And if you over distort them, you lose that. You know, the distortion sometimes actually goes, just backs off quite a lot and you just let them have real. And obviously if they're pulling their masks off, they can be full bandwidth. Yeah. At that that's what I have to say. I really appreciate you guys for the end of the final mix. You could kind of feel that initially kind of had it quite strong. And then we, even when we get into some of the dogfight and stuff, you can feel that you just kind of backed it up a little bit because you still feel the distortion and, and all the futzing, but just the clarity. You start just to connect with the characters a bit more. And I think that was brilliantly pulled off. Uh, do you know what? I thought I'd, I was listening to it yesterday. I don't know, Al, what did you, the music, the surprising thing, I don't know how you felt, but it, it didn't, it wasn't a military 
score, you know, for a film that is all based around, I don't recall any drum beats. Other than the funeral. Just a, just a funeral with that lo- the lone horn. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. Yeah. And that, you hear that and you go, oh, this is the only time. It's, it's, an, yeah. it's quite remarkable. This is a film about Maverick's history. It's a film about, in his mind, righting a wrong or trying to protect another wrong. He's trying to protect Rooster. He's trying to redeem himself from the death of Goose. This is a very emotional story about his coming to terms with how he belongs in these people's lives, in Rooster's life. And so I think that's where the score comes from. And then, as you were mentioning earlier, in Dark Star, it's also about Maverick's love of flying and his passion for... They, they make so, so many great jokes about, you know, Captain, still... He's not, you know, wanting to become Admiral. He wants to be in the air. Even to the point, you know, they have the briefing and he says, well, you know, it's been a while since I've been in an F-18, but he's game to go. And they're like, we're not going to put you back in a jet. You just need to teach it. But Maverick wants to fly. And that's his happy place. That's where he belongs. That combined, so the majesty of that, as, as you mentioned, combined with the tragedy of Goose's death and Rooster's being held back from being able to fly and going to Top Gun and all of that relationship stuff, that's where the music comes from. And I think it does that brilliantly. And it, what it does is it makes this action film a drama. It, it works beautifully. Yeah, yeah. It does. It does. It's a counterpoint. You know, it's it's the humanity of it that is, as you said, it's it, that's the focus, and that's that's the surprise. I think that's the surprise that seems to be most noted about the movie from the audience that has seen it. It invests us in the characters as opposed to us thinking too much about the action. The action's already there, and it's shot and filmed and written brilliantly. So the action speaks for itself, and when we have our moments, which we're grateful for, we have many moments where there, are no mu- where there is no music, but when the music does play, it is playing the characters and the emotion in a yeah. way that a blockbuster film doesn't normally do. And hopefully many filmmakers are watching this and thinking we don't need massive drums and percussion in this bombastic, militaristic driving machine to keep us invested. We're invested because of the performances and because of the emotion and because of the writing. And I, th- I think, you know, the, 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 the writing. And, and the sound effects, you know, it, it gives credit to the sound design to allow it to have its space and work brilliantly because it's not competing with it. You know, we've all worked on movies where you've got gunshots and drum hits and you're like, well, mm-hmm. <laughs> something's got to give. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this allowed your tracks and, you know, and Mark's mix and the kind of emphasis that the filmmakers wanted with the sound design to hold its own unsupported by music. Because, as you said, the score was about the people and the emotion. Yeah. So much so that it set the precedent for the entire picture, not just for the opening, yeah. just for, the, you know, a few scenes. Like you said, five-minute section without music. That's pretty brave. That's pretty yeah. brave. Yeah, we're, we're pretty fortunate to have that. Yeah. But I have to say, like, one of my favorite music cues in the films, I think Mark mentioned it earlier, is that with the Mach 10 plane, when we're kind of going to that wide, we're almost like, I don't know how many miles up in the air, it just kind of zooms across 
you know, in front of the blue planet. It's just a fantastic moment in the film. Mm. And you're right, how it kind of plays counterpoint to like all the action, the craziness before, and you're just up there alone with him. And then as it switches over to just kind of being in his head, it's, it's just mm-hmm. like, it's, 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 that's the other one of my favorite moments. I know we all love, we all love the bomb run so much, but uh, that's also a, just a, a great, great scene. Great balls of fire for me is the one. <laughs> I, I, honestly, that moment when, he, when Penny sees him looking through the window, I, it, I'm there. I, I can't talk. Yeah. I'm there, <laughs> I've seen it so many times, and every time it gets. Did me. you know they they uh, they actually built that set on that beach? Yes. That was not just an exterior. That was like it was all interior too. So oh. like they could do the shots of the window and stuff, and then they tore it yeah. all down and they rebuilt it on a soundstage again. That's the kind of <laughs> the commitment that they had to. You but it just what, what's it called? The is it called the the hard deck? The hard right? deck. Is that what the hard is called? The hard deck. Yeah. And and we needed um the great balls of fire. We had a little COVID fun. All of the. We basically needed an, another layer of singing just to back up what we had from the crowd in the original. So I think it was over a weekend. We all took a, a little recording of the lyrics and our various families put on American accents and sang a little bit. And then <laughs> I was going to I was going to say, actually, we're talking about music, just such kudos to Cecile Tornasac, yeah. the music editor, brilliant. And working with Eddie, with Eddie and Chris McHugh and Tom Cruise, you know, and, and again, I'm, I'm, there's so many things to talk about. We were restricted in where our filmmakers were. Joe Kaczynski was in the States. Jerry Bruckheimer was there in the States. What we tried to do was get what we'd mixed across and get their notes. But ultimately we were, and we were separate from Al and Bjorn as well. So we became our own little bubble, but we tried to make sure as the process went that no one felt excluded and we got there but such a crazy time i have to say it was just so fun such a crazy time to finish this film right when and we were in the depths of covid i'm sure we were all kind of like washing down our our shopping <laughs> when it got home you know it's just un- unbelievable so that's why yes yeah, so that's why we had english voices um doing the american accents doing that song. yeah so what happened with- <laughs> maybe yeah. maybe we should edit that out because i'm sure they weren't sag actors but <laughs> Well, I would like to personally promote that you get residuals, uh, yeah, residual because I think exactly it's, it, it made you're hard some, if you're, if you're to hard some of the singing, you wouldn't want to give any money to that. Mark's family Mark's, good, but Mark's the one with the proper soprano. Yeah. As you said, it 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 did make a couple of bob, right? This film, so. <laughs> so only i know only i know who actually ended up in the film and cecile because cecile cut all the tracks together and had layers and layers and about 10 families worth three people in their bedroom doing it and so at the end i saw all the names on the pro tool session so i know who's in the movie take it take it to your grave chris take it to your grave <laughs> But what was, oh, no, we can find the parental session, but what was really lovely, and this was typical of every time Tom and Chris or Corey would come in in helicopter and come into the studio to give notes and check out the reels. Um, Tom was pretty pleased with that. He actually commented on it and, and thought we'd done a good job, which was pretty good. You know, oh, okay, yeah. But it's a, yeah, that's a great scene. That's a great story. I, I, I didn't know that. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah, it, the scene plays great, and it's a tricky scene, so kudos. Yeah. You know the saying, a happy wife, is a happy life. Okay. <laughs> These are the things one does when working in COVID. To keep right. Honey, you want to be in a movie? You want to be in a yeah. movie? I'll put you in a big one. Yeah. 
Um, so we're, we've been talking for a long time. There's one question that I really want to ask before I let you go. Maybe I'll put it to Al first, but uh, I'm sure lots of you have opinions on this. When you're cutting dog fights, this would apply to race car scenes as well. There's a tendency for people to put in lots of long, steady sounds. And in this film, it didn't feel like that at all. It was only the motions, or at least the steadies were mixed very low. Al, do you want to talk about your philosophy on how to make the action sequences exciting with the punchy sound effect. Thank you for noticing that. It is a challenge. We've mentioned Eddie Hamilton. So first of all, his, his editing and the cut itself warrants the, the kind of uh, sound editing that we did. Uh, it was just brilliant and the way it flowed from scene to scene, it allowed us to not have to do these odd change-ups that felt wrong. So the cutting flowed nicely. Secondly, the reference to the 1984 85, 86 film was very important. And so we went back and looked at how that was done. And of course, the sound is brilliant for that film as well. Very sharp, very tight cuts. Uh, everything rises or drops. Everything moves. There's hardly anything that's stagnant or static when you are uh, with the jets or as the jets are moving. You know, that opening sequence over the aircraft carrier where they're fighting the MiGs, it's a lesson in how to cut sound effects. It's, it's beautiful. So we studied that very, very determinedly to understand the style of the Top Gun films. And then from there, it was working with the filmmakers, working with Joe, working with Tom, and you know the thing that was driven home was it's got to cut, it's got to slice, it, it has to hit and go. You know, one of the challenges was on those cuts where you'd hit a frame on an incoming buy or hit an outgoing, you know, we would try and put these low-end thumps in there. It gets round and it gets soft and it's it gets static and it gets stagnant. And anything that stays too long, it overstays its welcome. It slows the pace down, it slows the cut down. What we did was we defined a, a rather large and growing library of buys and ins and outs and cut sounds and these various elements that kept it moving and kept it propelling and kept us in the jet and not feeling like we had stopped. Uh, and then of course, you know, Mark brilliantly and James and team, you know, took this and carried it and put it together and you really feel that tight edit that, that we worked so hard to put together, you feel that in the mix. One of our rules was you don't use steadies, you use rising and falling. A lot of our recordings were of course too long. A jet flying by, even at whatever, Mach 6, if you're standing on an aircraft carrier and a jet goes by at Mach 6, it's still gonna take seconds to go by you. It's starting over here and it's ending over there. And if you, even if you just take the 24 frames of by that you need out of it, it just sounds like so you have to take this five, 10 second buy and you have to compress it and design it into a way that it feels like that ripping. And so there's a lot of trickery that is required to define the library. And then once you have that library, it's picking just the right ones. This one's rising, this one's falling and interchanging them so that it never feels stale or static. Lots of good hardworking sound editors took the time to take the, that library and put it together on both ends of the Atlantic and uh, yeah. it, you know, I'm, I'm glad you feel it. And one of the things that was most impressive about that library and that use of sound was the, the delicacy of having it punctuate dialogue. You know, it doesn't happen when somebody's talking. It doesn't happen when a music cue is starting to build. It, everything has its place. And, you know, Eddie, Eddie has set that tone and that timing. But the version of library design that you use is relative to, and we learned this when it, when you know when we studied 
taking your material, we learned that there's a very strong language that is relative to the performance and the dialogue that it's surrounding, that it's coming around. You don't want it to be over overly bombastic if it's not going to work with the dialogue. It's still going to hit the cut, but it can't obliterate the line of dialogue that's going to come in next. You're lubricating the pistons of the soundtrack so that it all works beautifully, smoothly, seamlessly, and, and it complements every other element of the soundtrack. These amazing punches, these sonic booms, which are brilliant, they are Top Gun. That is the signature sound, in my mind, that's the signature sound of Top Gun. To have them in a film with so much dialogue and with so much emotion, and they drive these sections with such success, it's very impressive, it was very impressive. Yeah, I mean, can I just big up Mark here? Because um, <laughs> only one element of, of, of an infinite amount of things in terms sonically, but the, this, this sort of low-end work as part of what you're describing in terms of it being and punchy and transient and retaining that with subwoofer and everything. The, the mess you can get into trying to get weight, and I, again, I'm, I'm speaking because Mark is more reticent than me to talk. I'm shy, Chris. But um, that, <laughs> that was something, it was just so clean and that, well, that was the intention again, it's for everybody else to judge that, but I think it was beautifully clean in the sense that low end like that, it tends to be, can be very messy and is often used as a crutch We've used it again and again, and filmmakers all the world over want to just pile it on. And sometimes it's, it's amazing. You can shake this, this cinema, the theatre, for seconds on end. But this didn't need that. But the reviews, people are talking about how they're on the edge of their seat and the low end, and they have those moments. And it's again, it's ridiculously gratifying that you, you're aiming for something and then someone just spells it back to you. That's how they felt. Yeah. So we had those shapes... I always think now about this thing is about shapes that you described and, and there's nothing, if you can avoid, occasionally there's uh, something that was static that might be, but, but it had a place, but for the most part, there was movement. And I think sub the, the various delineations of sub were just stunning. As I said, I'll say it for Mark if he's, if he's being a bit shy. Now, Chris, um, one of the moments in the film where I would uh, say, that, you know, the moments where there was a place for it, that last final thrust before John Hamm says, send them. Yeah. And uh, I'm sorry, before they launch off the aircraft carrier, you know, you were literally on the thrusters of an F-18. And uh, I was fortunate or not fortunate, depending on, you know, what my ears are doing in the next 10 years of my life. But uh, <laughs> it really is just, it, it, is, it, it is something you feel in your gut. It's just this massive wall of sound. You felt that in the theater. So that's one of those moments where we had, we could be a little more gratuitous. Absolutely. We created what I dubbed synaptic soundtrack. It is the first time that an audience, in my mind, has experienced what those guys on the screen are experiencing through the punch and the twist and the graunch and the every element of sound that was put in that film is there to enforce a synaptic response from the audience. So they feel like they've come out having had an experience, having had something physical from what everybody has done. And that is, that's quite some achievement, I think. Here it yeah. is. Yeah. Sure. Even on your iPad. Even on your iPad. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's one of those films. Again, don't watch on your iPad. It's a and it's one of those like Atmos mixes because like with Atmos, as we all know, we can kind of geek out on it. But it's when you with especially with all the jet buys and everything kind of flying around around you. It's that you 
uh, with, an, with that Dolby Atmos mix uh, that we ended up with. It's just the energy maintained, even when those jets kind of pulled off to the side. And that was just amazing. It was like one of those like eye-opening moments for me. There's been like certain films where I kind of say it's just really working well. And I think the Atmos, the Atmos mix really lent itself to kind of maintaining that engine. You can, you really, really felt that energy, I should say, all the way all the way when it kind of ripped in the back. And uh, I heard the IMAX as well. The IMAX played great. Yeah. <laughs> I love the IMAX. Yeah, the yeah. IMAX was amazing. There's a rawness to it, which I think was Yeah, great. you had that huge center speaker, and then you're sitting on these massive subwoofers. So uh, it translated well to IMAX. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. We've evoked his name many times, the editor, Eddie Hamilton. I read in an interview that he said that Tom Cruise, his marching orders for the sound of this film was the movie has to be sonically perfect every second of the film from beginning to end. And that's a daunting task to take on, but I have to say, you guys achieved it. This film uh, really blew me away. I loved watching it. In my intro, I mentioned that the first film launched a lot of kids to want to be both pilots and make movies. And I think that the same is going to be said for the 11-year-olds that are around right now because they're just getting their minds blown. It was an immersive in a way that I don't think I felt in a theater. I really loved it. And as I said, I was going in skeptical, and you won me over. Thank you very much for all your hard work on the film. It was great to talk to you. I have a million more questions, but we're run out of time. Thank you very much, everybody. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tim. Thank you so much, Tim. I really appreciate it. Wow, thanks to the whole Top Gun team for that great talk. Sorry for fanboying out a bit on the whole Top Gun world there, listeners. This episode was edited and mixed by the amazing volunteer David Weaver, who is a dream to work with and turn this around in absolute record time. Thank you so much, David. His website for audio tools and plugin development is weaveraudio.com, and he is the technical audio designer at Playside Studios. Follow him at dweaveraudio. D-W-E-A-V-E-R audio on Twitter for Unreal Engine audio breakdowns and silly but also very cool audio nonsense. David will be getting a complimentary copy of the fantastic sound design library Sonic Springs for donating his time to making this episode happen. Thanks to Katrina Amsler for providing this library for our volunteer editors. David is going to love the sounds he will be getting. You can find a link on this episode page to check out the library for yourself. Up next, we have a really great talk with the director and sound team of the amazing documentary, Fire of Love, from Nat Geo. I love it when we get directors on tone benders. They always bring a new dimension to the sound talks. Until then, my name is Timothy Muirhead. Thanks for listening to the Tone Bender Sound Design Podcast. Catch you next time. Tone Benders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio related podcasts to listen to? Tonebenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.